Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for gathering us together. Thank you that you have purposes and that and plans that you see what is real and you see what we need. You meet us where we are and beckon us toward life in your son, the Lord Jesus. Lord, we pray that for each one of us here tonight and with all those within the sound of my voice that you would be working in our lives. Soften our hearts, open our ears, open our eyes that we might see your son Jesus more clearly. We pray that our lives would not be the same because uh, we have interacted with you and in your word. And so, Lord, we ask that Jesus would be glorified in these minutes and also uh, beyond, that you would uh, claim more of our lives and our hearts for Jesus' kingdom purposes. We pray in his name. Amen. So I was wondering, I was wanted you to think of a time uh, where you got a thoughtful gift, or perhaps you got a thoughtful gift for someone. Gifts usually have two parts. There's the part that you can see and the part that you can't see. So the part that you can see, the sweater, the mug, the gift certificate, the homemade item, whatever, you know, that it's, there's a part that you can see and then there's the part that you can't see. It's what the gift means. It's why it's thoughtful, why it means something, why that particular sweater would be a good fit for you or that particular mug or that particular whatever, right? Um, and so there, it, it signif- gifts signify more than just the thing. It's about the relationship, the relational investment that you've made to know that person and to understand why uh, that, uh, those earrings would be the perfect gift. And if you've, presumably, if you've uh, cared enough to make a thoughtful gift, there must, I'm assuming that most of us giving thoughtful gifts hope that the person that receives the gift would appreciate and see not only the, the physical thing, right, but also what the gift means. And that they would see that picture on their wall or the mug or the candy, that your relationship would be reinforced and they would remember what they have together with you. And I'm guessing that most of us have experiences where we've gotten a gift either that lacked thoughtfulness and you're like, oh, thank you, a sweater. Um, or uh, you've, uh, we've given one where the person saw the outside only and they didn't really appreciate what the gift meant and how much effort you put in to that. And so sadly, we live in a world where physical things and what they mean are often fractured. We don't always have eyes to see what things mean. And the grand story of the Bible resonates with this problem. And it tells us, the Bible tells a story that God, the creator God made this world and he made us with physical needs and he set us in this world and gave us this environment for as gifts to us that we might be in relationship with him, that we might be his stewards in this God glorifying kingdom world. And uh, the sun and the rivers and the fir trees and celery and squirrels and cats and people, that each of those things is not only what we see, but has a part that we don't see, has a part that 
honors God and glorifies him and also signifies somehow our relationship with God and who we should be and how they testify to his character and care for us. And even the things that our bodies regularly need to survive, food, air, water, shelter, community, uh, the Bible suggests, and certainly the book of John, we're gonna see this over and over again, that Jesus is gonna draw on these physical things to show us the reality that there is a deeper spiritual reality that these things should point us toward. That Jesus is the light. Jesus is the bread of life. Jesus is the one who gives living water. And uh, we need, we desperately need, God has made it this way, that uh, we don't only need the physical things of this world that we need for life and flourishing, but we need what the physical things point to. God himself, as Jesus quotes, man cannot live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so we're in this point, even those of us who have trusted in Jesus, we're living in this world of, of fracture where we do not always, even those of us who are redeemed, see the physical things and understand or reflect on God's care and providence for us. And uh, we don't see below the surface. And that has been the case since our ancestors, uh, our very first parents, Adam and Eve, the Bible tells us, rejected God's good authority. And there has been that fracture. And so we are living in this time when God has promised to heal that fracture completely in and through his son, the Lord Jesus. Uh, But we're still waiting for the fullness of that. And so uh, God designed us to be satisfied in him. Uh, There are history, like C.S. Lewis talks about, is the long and terrible story of humanity trying to find something other than God to make us happy. But we can't and won't find that uh, because God made us only to find satisfaction in him. The outside things uh, are, are more than just sunlight and more than just food. And so what that means is, again, so to see God as the giver, the giver of all those things, and to see that there's more than just the physical thing, but there's what that means and the relationship, what that means. So the good news is for us is this, that God pursues us through Jesus, his son. He is our only hope for restoration and satisfaction from that fracture. We need to see and receive Jesus and his work, his person, his work. But to see Jesus more means to receive or to yield what he's already given and revealed to us. And so that's where we are tonight. We're gonna be looking at this uh, beautiful but complex chapter, or just part of it, uh, John chapter four, verses one to 30. And uh, we're going to do that in two divisions. And let me see, what's my aim here? Brett helped me with it. It's written on a different page. So this is what I think we can learn, or hopefully, uh, is that to be faithful with little is how you're entrusted with more. If we want more of Jesus, we want to see him more clearly. We want more of his uh, power and uh, healing and restoration in his life that does require that we are faithful with what we already have received about him. So with that, let's uh, dive into our passage this week. It's a little tricky to do the divisions because 
if you look, this section extends really to verse 42. And so this is a part one. Stay tuned to next week. So uh, we're going to, we're not going to go through 42 tonight. That will be next week that we do that. We're just going to go up through uh, verse 30. But I, I don't know, I wrestled with this a lot. Um, so we're going to see this the first three verses, Jesus conceals himself from Jewish leaders, verses one to three, and then this big, long division, really the rest of it. We're going to see Jesus reveals himself to a Samaritan woman. And really that probably only goes to verse 26. Uh, and it kind of picks up next week in the division. The woman's testimony anticipates Jesus' world mission, starting in verse 27 to 42. But just for the for our time tonight, and because I know you don't want me to talk as long as probably I want to talk, so that I'm just going to do two divisions, and we'll we'll just have to stay tuned till next week uh, for that third division. And I think uh, Jacob Weerson is going to be doing the lecture next week. Am I right about that? Where's Jacob Weerson? I think yes, woohoo! Yeah, so yay! So you can look forward to that. Okay, so uh, on this. So open your Bibles if you, or turn them on if you don't have that already done. Um, there's so many things that we could notice. Remember, we talked about this a little bit when uh, last I talked on John 2. There are a lot of things that we can learn from all these passages in John. And so the question is, what's really at the heart of the passage? And so sometimes uh, the most important lessons that John wants us to wrestle with are given to us in an interpretive statement. And we saw that in chapter two, verse 11, at the end of the miracle with the uh, water and the wine at the wedding in Cana, the, the narrator tells us like, okay, this is what we're supposed to get from this. Jesus revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. So sometimes the narrator gives us important statements like that and we need to pay attention. Here, we don't get that. Uh, so another place to look for those, for those big uh, moments is the peak tension in the narrative. So if we follow through the tension and the themes of what's going on in the narrative as the tension and the conflict builds, right around that peak tension is usually where we're going to find that is the thing that we should be looking for, not just there, but really throughout even the whole passage. Uh, so let's just take a high level look at where that the plot tension is greatest. And we'll do that in our larger passage, chapter four, one through 42, just really briefly. The dramatic tension, spoiler alert, seems to focus on identity. Who is Jesus? And uh, so uh, we see just to quickly, we'll, you, I'm so glad you got to discuss the passage. So we see in the first three verses, Jesus withdraws from the Jewish religious leaders and he starts going north uh, from uh, Judea where he was and up through Samaria. And he ends up by himself midday in an ancient well, a place with deep roots in God's redemptive story in uh, a town named Sychar, which is probably very close to the Old Testament Shechem. And it's in uh, near the mountains, Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal, which are tightly tied again to God's covenant story from the, in the Old Testament, you may recognize that. And so he ends up by himself with his presumably back, he's sitting near a well and his disciples have gone into town and a woman comes to the well, verse seven. And surprisingly, 
this whole narrative is all, has so many surprises in it, is, is um, just one surprise after another. Jesus and this woman have an extended conversation around themes of water, her story, and worship. Those three things. And so while those are the talking points that they're using, their discussion repeatedly and increasingly focuses on Jesus' identity. Who is he? And so in verse nine, you'll look and see he starts out and the conversation really starts when she is questioning the reality that he's a just ordinary Jewish man and asking a drink from a woman of Samaria. So there's that tension there. And then uh, that's surprising. And then Jesus doesn't answer that necessarily, but instead kind of pushes deeper into the identity. Verse 10, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And then uh, the woman is like, okay. Uh, Verse 12, she's confused. Uh, Are you greater than our father Jacob? So again, pushing into Jesus' identity, who is he? And uh, verse 19, after, you know, in the next point, he, you know, he he reveals that he knows more about her story than he really ought to for just being, if he were an ordinary man. And then uh, the woman says, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. And uh, he says back to her in verse 21, woman, believe me. And that is an imperative. That's a command and uh, believe. And he goes on to tell her things about God and, and worship and the suggest to you that what he's saying, really, I trust that what I say is true and from God. He's agreeing with her. And then she goes on and says, you know, well, when the Messiah is, you know, the Messiah is coming, verse 25, he was called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And then verse 26, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. And so that, uh, for us, that might feel just in our modern readership, that might be like, oh, okay, that's interesting. That would have been a huge mic drop moment. Like, boom. He is revealing himself and his identity very, very clearly as a Messiah. And we'll look in a little bit, even in a way that points to his deity using that, the phrase, I am. And uh, so that's, I suggest to you the narrative peak tension. Like, what is she gonna do? with this. What's going to happen? It's really his identity, right? And the the narrator draws it out a little bit. So we're sort of on the edge of our seat with uh, 27, his disciples come back. And then we find out in verse 28 that the tension, he, she goes back to her town and tells her people, uh, 29, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And so verse 30 and they went out of the town and were coming to him, which is probably the peak tension of the whole story, right? Because now these people are coming out. What are they going to do? We have another interlude where the narrator delays a little bit. We're like, ah, what's happening? And he talks to his disciples. We'll study that next week. But so really, and it's resolved the in, um, in verses uh, 39 to 42, uh, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with him, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we ourselves 
we have heard for ourselves and know that this indeed that this is indeed the savior of the world. Okay, so that's where we're going. Who is Jesus? And uh, just the craziness of the fact that he's concealed himself from the Jewish leaders and revealed himself and in, in so visibly to these Samaritan outsiders. Okay, so if uh, that's the main, um, where am I? Okay, so let's, that's what we're going to be looking at, really focusing on who is Jesus. And secondarily, how do we respond to others hearing others' testimony, hearing others' testimony about Jesus? And so um, all those other things that emerge in the passage, which are really interesting. What is living water? And what does worship mean? And um, how does he know so much about her? And what is that woman's story? And imagining those aren't bad things to think about, but we should be always, they shouldn't be really separated from Jesus' identity because he is the main focus of the story. Does that make sense? Okay, so quickly, let's just look at these first three verses. Um, Jesus is, again, concealing and revealing, and he's concealing himself from Jewish leaders. And um, it is super surprising that, um, you know, I mean, that he would leave uh, down where the important people are in Judea and the important people, the Pharisees, and travel up north. And so the narrator doesn't, uh, spell it out for us, but let's just read verses one and three. When now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And so the narrator doesn't tell us very much there, but you can see the the contrast between, or again, uh, John to Jesus. And so the, if the Pharisees have heard of Jesus' rising popularity in the same kind of terms that they had heard of John the Baptist, we might expect similar scrutiny as to what they've brought to John the Baptist. And maybe not just the same, but more, since Jesus is doing that more. And so we can look back in chapter 1, verses 19 to 28. Remember, that was really the first section that John's narrative introduced after the prologue. And uh, they are, the Pharisees in particular, uh, came, come up in 24 and 25. And then, of course, they wanted to know before that, who is John? And he's sort of being uncooperative with them. Um, and they asked him, uh, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor the Elijah, nor the prophet? And so that we should think they are going to probably be coming with they have those kind of concerns. Wait, 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 who, who is he? Why is he doing that? And we will see increasingly as John is a gospel, has been called a gospel of faith or a gospel of belief, we're going to see as the narrative goes on, rising faith and rising un, unfaith, rising belief and, rise, and rising unbelief. And so we're, we're seeing that, that contrast build even now in chapter four here. So these Pharisees, Jewish leaders are acting as guardians of the gate, which of course is good. That's part of their appointed work to not just let anybody in and, you know, but really caring for God's people, but they do not, uh, to use, um, Gandalf's phrasing from the movie for, uh, those who are, (laughs) Uh, or hopefully not uh, antagonists against that. Um, he, the Pharisees do not have the authority to deny the return of the king, right? The king is coming back 
and they were guardians and stewards and they do not have, it's their responsibility to recognize him and then to yield to him. And we can see, we don't get more of their story here as we will later along, but it is, we can definitely see that, uh, or I suggest to you that he is uh, avoiding the leader's scrutiny and which implies that Jesus has the right and the ability to conceal himself. So a principle I think that we can learn from this like short little division, uh, how someone responds to God's grace in Jesus matters. How someone responds to God's grace in Jesus matters. And that is sort of the story of the parable of the talents, right? He who is faithful with little will be trusted with more. You don't get more you're dissatisfied with the revelation that, you know, what you know about Jesus, you're not going to get to know more about Jesus until you've accepted, received in faith, yielded to that which he has already revealed to you. To be faithful with little is how you are entrusted with more. So I wonder uh, how, uh, what have, what, what do you know about Jesus? How, what has he revealed to you? Uh, what have you learned about him through his word, through uh, being in his church and serving in his church? What have you learned about him and how have you responded? And if you feel like, uh, do you feel like you're kind of stagnant? Like being in those places where you're like, where is, you know, you're, you're praying and it's like nobody's there. Or you're, you know, going to church, you're like, why am I doing this? It just feels kind of flat. Uh, there could be a lot of reasons, so I'm not trying to fix that problem necessarily, but I suggest to you that it could be that there is some stubbornness in your heart that you've not yielded to something that Jesus has revealed to you about his character, his person, his ways, his work. And you and I won't be able to go further than that. And I can testify that. Like um, when I was a, a new Christian, God had... Um, pretty early on as a new Christian, I, um, I had lied and cheated a lot before I was a believer. And uh, when I became a new Christian, um, you know, it just kept coming to my mind that I had lied and cheated about like high school chemistry on tests. Like I would write the answer on my hand. And I was like, I could sort of make peace with it myself and say like, oh, well, I could learn it. I'm smart enough. I could learn it. So it's okay. Like, I mean, that's what I thought at the time. But so as, you know, and when you're walking with the Lord and yielding your life to him, he's going to just, he's going to uncover things, right? And just like, we'll see that with the conversation in the Samaritan woman, he's uncovering things that we need to look at together, Jesus and me we need to look at this. And so he kept bringing it up and I say, Lord, I, you know, I'm really, please forgive me. I don't, you know, I'm not doing that anymore. I'm, I've put that off. And yet it just kept coming back. Like, and I'd said, no, Lord, I will, you know, I, I had the sense, not that I wasn't, not that he hadn't forgiven me, but he had work to do in my, like I had work to do with that. I needed to confess that to my chemistry teacher. I mean, I'm like, I'm a junior in college. <laughs> like, I, you know, I'm like, Lord, that's crazy. Who, who does that? Who's gonna, you know, write a letter or whatever? And so I said, nope, 
Lord, I'm, I, you know, I'll do anything, but I'm not going to do that. <laughs> well, guess, you know, I mean, I didn't grow for a long time until like he kept bringing it back and said, you know, I mean, I could, and not that I heard the Lord audibly, but it would just come back. And so, you know, eventually I got to the point where I yielded to use Haley Rose, great word, um, to say, okay, Lord, I, you know, I, I don't know how, I do not know how to do this, uh, but I'll write that letter. And I, I did, I wrote the letter and I like told like all the bad things and like, dear Mr. So-and-so, this is what I did. And I'm so sorry. Like, and then like, it was a, it was a couple days, uh, it was probably a week or two later. And it came back, the letter came back and it was my letter in it. And I opened it up and he had written in red pen, which is that teacher. He always used red pen. He was like forgiven. And it was like, I wept joy. There was such joy and obedience. Um, so I encourage you, like, I didn't intend actually to tell that story. I don't know, I don't know why exactly I told all that story. But um, is there some place where you have put your foot down with the Lord and say, Lord, I'll do that. I'll do anything, but I won't do that. Not going to give up that. Not going to do that. Not going to talk to that neighbor. Not going to fill in the blank. I encourage you as a sister in Christ return and talk to the Lord about that and ask him to help you move forward because he he's not going to I mean that's my experience he's not going to let you let be like oh, okay you convinced me it's not a big deal no it's a big deal and he's going to take care of you okay I'm sorry that was a that was a long uh, rabbit trail. Here we go. To be faithful with little is how you're entrusted with more. And so now we're going to see that in this uh, division here with, you know, very, you know, could it be someone who is like un- more unlikely to receive uh, a revelation about Jesus uh, than this Samaritan woman? And so let's just look briefly at some points of that, this uh, story, uh, verse 24 to 26. So we're going to, so we are really setting up the context, verse four. Uh, it's mysterious. And it, the narrator tells us, and he had to pass through Samaria. So we wonder like, what was it that he had to? The narrator doesn't tell us, but now for thinking about Jesus' identity, I suggest to you, we should understand the nece- necessariness with respect to his identity. And that it seems like he had a divine appointment to reveal himself as Messiah to this insignificant woman and for her neighbors to hear about that and respond. Uh, God knows what is necessary and Jesus does it. Uh, Jesus seeks out those who are unable to come to him, uh, which is of course us all. And then in verse uh, five and six, the narrator wants us to remember that this land where Jesus is passing through, even though it was, it was unlikely, it was a, a, an un, uh, culturally not a very palatable route for Jewish people to travel through Samaria, the land did belong in God's story. And God isn't done with it. And so wants us to remember about uh, the story of Jacob and Joseph and perhaps even echoes of Jacob meeting Joseph's mother, Rachel, at a well. Not that well, but a well. And maybe even uh, pushing in toward 
uh, some suggestion of redemption of Dinah's story, Jacob's daughter Dinah, who was uh, defiled around that, that space. Um, okay, so, and then we get into this uh, dialogue in verse uh, 7 through 26, and there's really three sections of identity that are here. Uh, 7 through 14, we'll see that Jesus uh, claims to be the gift of God, the one able to give living water. In 15 to 18, we see the woman says, okay, yes, I want that living water. And it leads to Jesus revealing himself as the one who knows her story intimately. And then 19 to 26, uh, the woman's recognizing Jesus as prophet leads to her receiving even more that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ. And so we'll just briefly look at those. Uh, so Jesus is probably in, you know, actually physically thirsty, uh, but Jesus uses physical water to point to the greater spiritual reality because you and I don't just need physical water every day. Of course we do, but uh, we actually need perhaps even more than that uh, spiritual water that only Jesus can give us. Uh, and so in, in uh, particularly verse 10, Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And the woman, of course, is confused because she, like most of us, are, you know, just think of water literally, physically, it says, sir, it's actually, uh, interestingly, it's the word that can be translated Lord, but can also just mean sir in a normal context. Sir, you have nothing to draw with and the water is deep. Where do you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus goes on to kind of answer both of those questions. Uh, where do you get that living water? And are you greater than our father Jacob? With this next Section 13 to 14, everyone, he says to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And so we see in here, uh, Jesus is God's gift. He has the ability and the authority to give uh, out the gift of God, living water, to all those who ask. And uh, I suggest to you, he, he shows himself to be greater than his father Jacob. He is the greater Jacob. And the water that he gives will permanently satisfy and forever meet our spiritual thirst. And what Jesus gives us does satisfy our deepest inner needs to be loved, to have meaning and purpose, to know he whom, who in himself is truth and life. That is what water means, friends. When you and I see water, have a drink, that's what it means. It means satisfaction um, in Christ. Uh, and his gifts suggest not only uh, what he can do, but also his abundance. Not only will we not thirst, but he will put in us his living water as a spring welling up. Uh, verses, uh, chapter seven thirty-seven to 39 suggests that this living water is closely associated with the Holy Spirit. And if you think about that in a really dry country where water, you probably think about water a lot and you're thirsty a lot. To have a spring bubbling up, like we didn't live 
in Missouri, and there's water everywhere, right? Sometimes there's too much. Like we have mosquitoes because there's too much water. But you go down south uh, in the Ozark River, Scenic River area. Have you seen that big spring? Just like a spring that like bubbles and bubbles and bubbles and like millions of gallons of water come up every day. And that, my friends, is like that imagery. Like Jesus isn't giving us a little. He's giving us a lot and abundance. And not just that, but it's not just for ourselves. When you and I have received Jesus and drink of his living water, what we then we're like a spring for other people. And this woman, we see her go in to her village and splash all over. Like springs, you don't contain them. They're just water everywhere. Um, and so we see in this, uh, the middle section of their conversation, 15 to 18, the woman's request for living water is really kind of the core that she holds onto, even though she does, uh, you know, they talk later about what we would probably say, like, that's, these are really important takeaways. Worship, um, the core of the woman's testimony is really right here, um, verses 15 to 18, because he, he, she requests the water and uh, thinking, of course, it's probably physical, but maybe glimpsing a life where her deeper thirsts are satisfied. And Jesus takes her to the next stage. So she's been faithful to respond to the little, and he gives her more. And he shows her that he is the one who knows her, verses 16 through 19. Jesus said, go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you were right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you said is true. And the woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. And that, we don't know her situation. And I know it's kind of fun to speculate, I guess, about um, kind of what her story might've been. But my friends, we don't know. Like, we don't know that she ended up at the, at the well because she was trying to avoid people. Um, you know, I've ended up at the grocery store at 10 p.m. at night. It's not because I've, you know, trying to not avoid people. Uh, it's just sometimes your life goes that way. But the point is, she was there when Jesus needed her to be there. And he knows her story. And he said the things exactly that say, I know your story. And like, you know, is there immorality in her past? Of course, uh, you know, probably in that one clause, the one you have now have is not your husband. But that's the, like, we all have that, friends. We have all rejected God's good authority and living in our own way. And the glorious thing here is that Jesus did not retract his offer because he knows what we have done. And yet that he does not hold that out as like, that's the end of your story. His offer of living water invites you and me to have a different story. And that different story is what then she goes off and tells in uh, 29 to 30 and 39. Um, And so, uh, yeah, okay. So amount of time, but... um, So a principle I think that we can uh, learn from this. Where is that on this scribbly page? Okay. Um, Jesus redeems all who receive him. Jesus redeems for himself 
all those who receive him. And when he does that, friends, he redeems us and he redeems our stories. So that what is or will be true about us is not our failures and what we have done or have not done or failed to do, but rather his kindness and how he is pushed into those places. And we see uh, what is remembered about this woman, what's true about her is the fact that whatever relationship she had with her villager friends or neighbors, like she went right back and they listened to her. They listened to her testimony because her testimony, it suggests it had power by the Holy Spirit. The other words that she spoke um, were empowered by uh, Jesus' spirit. So I wonder uh, if you belong to Jesus, what, is, what do you think is true about you? What's true about your story? Who are you? What have you done? And what would Jesus say is your story now? If you know him, how has he intervened? What has he told you about who you are that has changed you and changed not only what you do, but how you live and what you say um, and how you can now know him as real, as patient and kind, redeemer. And if you are still thinking about uh, who is Jesus, do I trust him? Uh, I encourage you, friends, to think carefully and deeply because, in my, I mean, I can only say what is my own testimony. He is true. And he has rewritten my story. So it is not one of death and self-destruction. But he has said, Vicki, I want you to live. And he's helping me do that. He, it doesn't mean that there isn't still rebellion in my heart, but he, my friends, is winning. He will win in your painful situation too. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for how you pursue us and care for us in the Lord Jesus. And we ask, Father, that the things that are true about him would increasingly be the things that we see and receive in faith, that we live in the light of that beautiful reality of his character and his work. And Father, that you would use us, even us, in our words and our actions to expand Jesus' kingdom in St. Louis and beyond. We pray this in his name. Amen.